Well, let's uh, turn surprise, surprise to Luke chapter 18. Some of you even knew that was coming. Luke chapter 18. Starting in verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd go by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful passage that is, we have three accounts of in your word. Um, there are some lessons in here that are directly and expressly needed in our thinking, needed in our hearts as we uh, commune with and we have um, a fellowship with this very God who who walked among men and, and, and is now the one principally that we are dealing and following. Um, so Lord, we, we pray that you would sharpen our understanding of, of who God is, sharpen our understanding of how we relate to him. And Lord, I would pray that you would use this word by your spirit in hearts here today in countless ways by the power of the word ministered by the Spirit, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have an interesting account here. It says that this took place while Jesus was, listen, approaching Jericho. He's coming into Jericho. Um, so we pick up the account. And this is part of his journeying through, for the very last time, into Jerusalem. So we're, we're studying this as he's basically the last few days before uh, he's going to go up in the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ. And just because most of us haven't been there, I don't know. Has anybody been to Jericho? No, nobody here. Okay. Oh, yes, we do have some. Okay. Nice. Okay. Did you bring us any water from there? No, no water from there. All right. Well, Jericho is about five miles up the hill from one of the lowest spots on the entire globe, uh, dry land places, uh, which is the Dead Sea. So it's just five miles up the hill from the uh, Jordan River and past it 15 miles uh, further up is, the, uh, is Jerusalem, uh, further uphill to the southwest. Now Jericho has a wealth of history connected with it 
And some of that is needed to better understand our passage this morning. So we'll look at that. The original Jericho, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Uh, it was originally a walled city and it was one of the earliest cities that had a defense system of walls. Okay, It had a, an, an initial uh, enormous rock base and then on top of that was built uh, some bricks, a brick wall on top of that. So it had a kind of a two-stage wall sort of affair. And it was one of the earliest cities to actually employ that. Uh, immediately, we, we remember stories like this was where Rahab the harlot lived. Uh, it would have been, as, as they were sitting in Jericho, looking off to the east for 40 years as the Israelis were uh, wandering in the wilderness, they would have seen something that they saw as very troubling, the glory of the Lord. Um, and that would have been visible to them because they would have seen the, that light uh, spear going from the ground up into, up into the atmosphere. And they'd have been going, well, what's all that about? And, and they'd heard about all of the things that had happened to the Egyptians and so forth. And so they were terrified that here was this power that was right on their doorstep. It was the first city to be conquered on the west side of the Jordan River. When they came over to the Jordan River, they were already terrified. Um, so this was the first city as the Israelites were going to be conquering the promised land. And as you remember, on the seventh day, the walls fell down and the inhabitants, at the instruction of God, were killed and the city was burned, except, of course, for Rahab and those that were with her. If you want to turn for a moment, turn, if you would, to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. Just to remind ourselves of some of the story here. <clears throat> Verse 24, they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and the gold and the article of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. It was Corban to the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her family's father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Helpful to know this is 1406 B.C. 1406 B.C. Well, if we go to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter... 16. That verse wasn't making sense because it was 2 Kings. It's also a good verse, but that's not the right one. 1 Kings chapter 16. And verse 34. In the days, in his days, 
Hail the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Ebram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the Joshua, the son of Nun. So this is approximately somewhere between 525 and 550 years later, after it had been abandoned for over 500 years, which is and then, you know, quite a thing, 500 years ago, approximately, is when the Reformation was beginning in Europe. It's a, that's a long time ago. The place sat absolutely, it was desolate. Joshua, when he, uh, when he trashed the place, one of the last things he did was he left a little bit of the rubble aside, and he put to death the king of the Canaanites, stuffed his body in there somewhere, and then piled the rest of the rubble of the old Jericho city on top of it, which would have acted as a bit of a discouragement for anyone to go rooting around and say, well, let's find the, the, uh, the foundations of this town and build it again. It was deliberately to the idea, let's not ever have this place built again. Um, but somebody did, 500 and about 50 years later, these guys said, no, we're going to build a place. And, and uh, it was, it, there were some wonderful uh, advantages to Jericho that were probably not advantages that any other city enjoyed. Anyway, they built a new city, but they didn't build the city right on the old uh, foundations because there were dead bones there. Um, they built it, they, they took about a 10-minute walk, a 5 to 10-minute walk, uh, and they set up the new city to the southeast of the old ruins. Joshua, as we say, had stuffed the body of the defeated and executed Canaanite king in the pile of rubble, so they stayed away from that. And uh, then, so here it is, they built a new city, and that new city would have been about 900 years before the time of Christ. And then just mere decades before the time of Christ, along came a guy named Herod. Herod uh, was a builder. He did a lot of building programs, and he was actually pretty good at it. And he was looking around, and he says, man, there aren't too many places quite as nice as Jericho. Herod took a shining to the place because of the wonderful climate. And you say, well, you know, we've heard a little bit about the climate of Jerusalem. You know, it, it's nice in some respects. It's, uh, it might be a slight improvement on Kitscotty, arguably, especially in the last two weeks. But, but, you know, how nice could it be? Well, there is a remarkable difference that happens between Jerusalem and Jericho, just because of the height advantage. It would be like Southern California compared to Idaho. It would be like the ski slopes just above Vancouver and Vancouver. It is a remarkable uh, change in terms of what happens in the ecology and, and in the how, how nice a place is. It is. There is that much change just in 15 miles. When we get to Jerusalem in a few days as we go through the text, the writer tells us that it is not yet the season for figs. But in Jericho, they're found in abundance. Okay, it'd be like 
the difference between us and the Okanagan, except it's the Okanagan, but warmer, much. Okay, so there was a very beloved tree in the area, and it was called the fig mulberry tree, or the sycamore tree. And you're going, oh, I think there's a story about a sycamore. Yeah, it's coming up. That's next chapter. Anyway, there is this fig mulberry tree uh, that is the picture-perfect climbing tree. Kids would love this. It has many gnarled branches, and it's kind of like a vastly overgrown willow clump uh, here, except it's, you know, it can be like 20 feet at the stump. Um, and the other thing that's different than uh, a willow clump is the bark of this tree all the way along its uh, branches is decorated with golf ball sized sweet figs and they're actually quite nice so there's these beautiful trees that kind of grow here and very few other places so because of the interest by Herod at the time of Christ there was the old city that had been destroyed there was the newer city uh, that was built about 800 and some years before that after, um, before Christ and now there was a residential Jericho and an administrative commercial Jericho where uh, Herod had done his stuff and that's where we're going to meet Zacchaeus next chapter climbing a fig mulberry sycamore but it was a wonderfully warm wonderfully fragrant well-watered fruit tree and date palm growing area on a busy prosperous international trade route so it made it as a city a great place for yes tax collectors because uh, there's lots of stuff going back and forth great place for tax collectors a great place for thieves because people are transporting things of value and of course it's a great place for beggars and here we are back to our passage in Luke chapter 18 as Jericho was approach as Jesus was approaching Jericho well the event is covered by three gospel writers and uh, it's always good to have the kind of synoptic view or get you know the all of all of what's being said about it because it's intended that we would have that okay so Keep, keeping your finger in Luke, let's go to Mark chapter 10 as he tells us about what happens when Jesus is, what does it say, approaching Jericho. So let's go to Mark chapter 10. And here it is, we have the same account, the parallel account. And they came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho, well, hang on. I must have made that wrong read that wrong, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples. What do we do with that? What? I mean, one said they were coming, the other one said they were going. Well, you know, I took, I took this thing out of this already. There's about three different Jerichos, right? And so one writer is saying he's leaving one of the sites, and the other writer is saying, writer is saying he's coming to the other site. Probably what he's doing is he's on that five, ten minute walk in between the old, old site and the new residential site because the next day we're going to see him in the commercial site meeting Zacchaeus. He's just kind of walking his way through. 
a little bit of that background helps, right? But let me tell you something as a kid. So a little bit of personal sharing time. I noticed this. I noticed this and I kind of did the back and forth and I go, what's going on here? Because one says he's coming, the other one says he's going. And you can say, well, so he's in the Jericho vicinity, whatever. But no, actually, I, I, I wanted to be sure that there was a little bit more, um, what, trustability about the Word of God. And, and I, I got to tell you, it bothered me. You know, I, I went back to Matthew, to the account in Matthew chapter 20. What does Matthew chapter 20 say? They were leaving Jericho. And I didn't know all of this background about there being two different Jerichos, or I should have, it's, it's in scripture, but I didn't know about it. And so then I start looking for, like who's got an answer for me on this? And sadly, when I was uh, a young believer, the only answers were people who are saying, well, you know, one author says leaving, one author says coming, ah, close enough. They were in the vicinity. One of the, one of the uh, gospel writers, he, he was trying, he got a lot of the details right. Is that okay? Is it okay if he just got a lot of the details right, but some of them are, ah, you know, close? Not for me. Not if this is the Word of God. Not if I, if I want this to be dependable down to verb tenses, I'm going, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with living with that. But you know something? What was commonly available to me was just that. Don't expect too much from the Gospel writers. They are writing 2,000 years ago. None of them know how to run a digital watch. None of them know how to run a, a vehicle. They don't even know what a telephone... I mean, they're ignorant. And, and so one of them says he was coming, one of them says he was going, man, how much can we expect? That's a horrible, horrible idea. And so if you've ever run across that, and, and if you have found something like that in the Word of God and you run across that kind of a, um, an explanation, it, it can be... It can be soul devastating. It was for me. I'm going, man, how, how much can I trust that they got the details right? So let me first of all say, here's what you do when you run across details that are different. And you will find something. We find it here in this passage. You take it synoptically. You understand that the writer is saying what he's saying and what he's saying is true. Okay? So in Luke... Does it say um, that he was coming to the residential section and the other one is saying he was leaving? No, it doesn't. It's not specified. Can both of them be uh, saying something that's absolutely true? Yes. And so we need to understand, oh, okay, he's leaving one and he's coming to the other. And we needed to know that. And, that, and that's fine. Uh, but don't at that point in time say, begin to doubt the accuracy of the word of God. We're going to run across one more thing. Oh, we might as well tackle it now. Let's go to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Same account, same time, exactly. <clears throat> Verse 
Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, and they were leaving Jericho. Okay, now, now we're not worried about that anymore. Now we got it figured. There's, it, it, there's, there's a way that that can be right. Large crowd followed him. So not only was there a big crowd that was just naturally going through on their way uh, from the north into Jerusalem for the Passover, there were some that were specifically following him. And so they are all good believers, right? Uh, no. Lots of people followed Jesus. Lots of people uh, were then going, Sotaran, Sotaran, crucify him, crucify him. In, within a week. So, big crowds look like they're following Jesus. Don't make assumptions. All right? But anyway, here they are, big crowds following Jesus. And two blind men said, whoa, hang on, hold the phone. Two blind men. Two blind. Well, I thought, I thought Matthew and Mark said there was one blind man. What again do we do with this? We handle it synoptically. How many men were there? Two. Did Mark and Luke say there was one and only one? No. Uh, but it focuses on the one individual. And you say, I wonder, I wonder why that would be. Why would, would he uh, be talking about their Mark and Luke just focusing on the one? Well, I think that's going to come out in the story, actually. We just need to attend to the details and, and assume that whoever is writing knows, what knows whereof they speak. Okay, so let's go back to Luke chapter 18. So, Jesus was approaching Jericho. You got that. You're not going to get stumbled by that anymore. A blind man was sitting by the road begging. We know he had a buddy with him now. Okay. Actually, if we, if we read a little further in Mark chapter 10, we find out we know his name. Um, Mark tells us, for a very good reason, what his name is. He is the son of Timaeus. Or you would say Bartimaeus, Bar, son of Timaeus. So, why would they give the name? We'll get to that. So, they were by the road begging. Why begging? Well, because it's pretty hard in this day and age to get a job if you're blind. Blindness is a tremendous, it's, it's an impediment today. We know of a situation of a young man who, uh, through disease, uh, got progressively more and more blind. And, and before he got married, he was blind. And the kind of limitations that puts on a brilliant young man, okay? Blindness is a difficulty. And I have a great heart sympathy for people who are facing the onset of something that would challenge their sight because it's it is potentially life altering life changing well anyway here they are they're by the road and they're begging um, you need to know something we have a in this culture a bit of a sensitivity and a, and a bit of a um, we tend to feel for people who are blind we're we are approachable to the idea, not so at all at, at the, at the, during this time. Uh, do you remember back in John chapter 9? Actually, let's go there for a bit so we catch that because not everybody here was here as we preached through John chapter 9. And some of you might not even remember. Look at that. Um, John chapter 9 verse 1, as he was passing by, 
he saw a man blind from birth. And that was actually fairly common. There were all kinds of diseases that the mother could have that at the time of birth then the child gets exposed to uh, during the birthing process uh, some things that affect their eyes and they they lose their sight uh, we don't know if that's the case here or if there was just something where not all the pieces are there uh, but he was born he was blind from birth we don't know uh, the it is a little bit ambiguous meaning that he was blind and and that was the case from him being uh, a baby in the womb or that the birthing process itself caused him blindness but sometimes the birthing process causing him blindness most of the people at the time go oh, okay and the reason why you have that disease is sin all right so the disciples asked him rabbi who sinned this man or his parents because obviously they're saying somebody did something wrong and this is the judgment of God on their life because it is so such a a huge thing who uh, sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind Jesus answered it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but so that the works of God might be displayed in him um, and it, was that something that was that should have been new and revelatory no actually all the way back remember in the discussion uh, between God and and uh, Moses at the burning bush He's saying, man, I, I'm, a, I'm a man of a slow tongue. I, I'm not much of a speaker, basically. How can I be a leader if I'm not much of a speaker? And God says, am I not the guy who makes people either a good speaker or not a good speaker? Or the careful phrase there, am I not the one who makes people blind or sighted? So understand, all of that is subject to God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. People at that era did not understand that. If you go ahead a little bit in John chapter 9, he's, they're having this sparring match between the scribes and Pharisees and this blind man who now has sight. And uh, the blind man has a great sense of the ironic. I love this. The man answered, verse 30, and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing. Look at this that you do not know where he is from, where, where, God, where Jesus is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Like, how is it that you are that dense? We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And he says, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. We know of one situation where Elisha, struck a whole army with blindness and then restored their sight graciously but but somebody born blind that it, it's unheard of if this man were not from god he could do nothing and they answered him you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us in other words obviously self-evidently you're a sinner you're blind so you know case closed but there was that there was that understanding so there wasn't very much sympathy there wasn't very much warmth extended to blind people. They were considered unworthy and evidently sinful, in spite of the fact that God says over and over again, if, if there's somebody blind, it's, it's because I did it. It's because I did it. 
And that isn't just always a situation where I'm, I'm just slamming them with, with some sort of judgment, as we're going to see in the story. Well, going back to Luke chapter 19. Now, hearing a crowd going by, well, there's always a crowd going by there, everybody going up to, to the Passover, but there was something audio-wise was different about this. There was, there was some change in the clamor of the crowd. Okay, He began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Jesus of Nazareth passing by. And look at his response. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When the crowd and these people who are basically self-appointed okay, we're going to be kind of like we're running the crowd here and, and we're doing crowd control, like we're part of the big organization, you know, we're part of it all. Um, and, and they're coming through, and so who is this? This is Jesus of Nazareth. And, and he starts calling out, no, no, quiet, uh, we're, we're running this show, you, you shut up and, and be quiet. We've we got important stuff going on here. Anyway, who do they think he is? Jesus of Nazareth. Who does this guy say he is? Jesus, son of David. What in the world? What does that mean? Why would he say that? Well, he's immediately, he's making a very theologically informed, theologically sophisticated statement. By calling him the, the son of David, he's hearkening all the way back to, for example, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the covenant God made with David, that is reiterated over and over again in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, there is going to come somebody who is of the lineage of David, who is going to be utterly remarkable. He is, like the psalmist said, going to be the Yahweh and a man. The Yahweh and a man. This is the, this son of David is going to be a natural um, descendant of David and yet he's going to be supernatural and there was this how in the world could that be but this guy has sorted it out that in the midst of all of that that's this guy who's walking through that's this guy who's walking through where would he get that well by being biblically literate actually turn if you would to Isaiah chapter 29 there are passages that maybe we would read over and skim over very quickly because they don't really kind of ring a bell, but here's some passages that rung a bell, and evidently this guy <clears throat> dug in and tried to find out what exactly does this mean. Isaiah chapter, <coughs> pardon me, 29. And um, it's talking about the coming of the Lord, after he's disciplined Israel, he's going to come back. Verse 17, it is not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And I got to tell you something. That was, of course, written about 700 years previous. And most of the Bible expositors for the last 700 years 
if you just said, what does that little phrase mean here? Out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. What does that mean? Most of them would say, well, you dummy. This is Isaiah. Dum-dum. That's prophecy. So you, you take it figuratively. Okay? In, in some sense, people who don't know very much are going to move into places where they know a little bit more. Okay? You, you know, dum-dum. Uh, people who are blind are going to see more. It, it, it's figurative. It's, it's allegorical. Right? And, and that was basically the only understanding. But Bartimaeus would be, have been considered in his era a knuckle-dragging troglodyte, a cave dweller, because he was saying, actually, I kind of think that this is something that the Messiah is actually going to do. He's going to actually cause blind people to be able to see. You go, well, it's one verse. I mean, how far are you going to get carried away with it? Well, uh, scoot ahead to Isaiah chapter 35. Again, talking about the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4, take, uh, Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. It's talking about, again, the deliverer. And the context of this, if we'd had time to develop it, is the coming of the one who is the son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Verse 5. Then, as a consequence, when he comes, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And again, if you go back to how people were interpreting it, guess how they were interpreting this for 700 years? Allegorical, figuratively, you know. People uh, are gonna, who are lame are going to leap like a deer. <clears throat> yeah, like, obviously that, that's not physically going to happen. It's just that, you know, people are sort of going to get excited. I don't know. Uh, how, if it doesn't mean what it's mean, it's always a little bit difficult to figure out what it does mean if it doesn't mean what it means. See what I mean? Anyway, um, but most people would have taken that completely non-literally. Again, I'm going to tell you that Bartimaeus, he probably said, you know something? I don't know, it looks to me like he might be opening the eyes of the blind. And that could be one of the very signs or signals that this is the son of David, the Messiah. Come. Interesting. So, he's yelling out. The only identification he's heard so far is, this is Jesus of Nazareth, He's put all the pieces together, and he said, actually, no. Jesus, son of David. Son of David. Now, he's got a few little hints that are going back. If you go all the way back, you know, to places like Luke chapter 7, it says that there was something happening in all of these crowds that were following around Jesus. All of a sudden, in these huge crowds that were filled of needy people multiple times, multiple times, people who were blind were receiving their sight over and over again. We read that and we go, yeah, okay, yeah, the people were blind. And, we, and we're not struck with the enormity of that. That's an enormous thing. People who are blind are being given back their sight, which is reconstructive of body parts, reconstructive of connections to the brain, all, all of that stuff. 
perfectly functioning eyes. How, where does that come from? Well, the hand of a creator. The hand of the son of David. So, he's heard about this. And I mean, if you were blind, you'd have been, you know, the radar is up a little bit. You're, you're catching this, oh, there are people who are blind who are getting sight. And, and, and so he's putting the pieces together. What kind of a, there, there have been lots of prophets in, in Israel who've come through and, and none of this was happening. Why the particular sign of people receiving sight? And he's going, where do we see that in scripture? He goes, to, and he goes, oh, looks to me like this could be one of the signal events of this is the Messiah, the Son of God. So anyway, somebody causing the eyes of the blind to see would catch the attention of someone who was blind. So it appears that this man had an understanding of Isaiah. Nobody told him that. And it appears he took it literally. And it appears that he had wonderfully connected the dots. Beautiful. Well, verse... 38, he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way, in other words, they were going ahead of Jesus and they were kind of acting like crowd you know, control. Were they, were they told to do that? by? No, they were self-appointed. They were just kind of, you know, pretending like they were part of the big entourage. They were on the bandwagon. And there were lots of people on the bandwagon. We're going to see it horribly at the close of this week where there are lots of people on the bandwagon. They're putting their jackets down on the ground. They are putting palm trees down. They're going, Hoshiana, Hoshiana, O Lord, save us now, which is exactly what Israel was supposed to be saying to their Messiah. They were on the bandwagon, and then a week later, crucify him, crucify him. But here were people on the bandwagon, and they're, they're kind of taking charge of the whole thing. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. Okay, absolutely. That's not what we're about. The thing we're about is this political thing. And, and he's saying, they're saying, just absolutely kept quiet. But he kept crying out all the more. And in this phrase here, it's hinted at. And in Matthew, it's said you know, very directly. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase. The, the word cry, and, and it is the same word that is used of demon-possessed people and ladies giving childbirth. It, it, this is not just a, oh, yoo-hoo. It, 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 it is from the heart, you know. Uh, trivial example, I, I remember... Uh, this would have been about 20 years ago. I, I was going on the roller coaster at West Ed. And there was a guy that was with me. He was a pastor. And I won't, uh, he, he, he was pretty sheltered. And he said, I don't know if I should be on a roller coaster. Sometimes movement makes my stomach feel a little icky. I thought, I have to get him on the roller coaster. <laughs> now, now I need to. <clears throat> I said, no, no, come, come with me. It's just going to be great. And so we got on the front seat, and we're going chunk, 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 all the way up. Some of you have been on that. And uh, he's saying, is there something I should be doing at this point? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, it's traditional or it's typical that at this point in time, you kind of release a little bit of the thing, and, and you begin to kind of yell a bit. So I suggested, why don't you go ahead and yell? And he said, yell. Yeah. Oh. 
And so he put his hands up a bit and goes, Ah, it was the most anemic. Huh? <laughs> and then we just started, went over the end and we're kind of going down into that corkscrew. And it all changed. It went from, ah, to, ah, it, it was from the heart. Okay. Anyway, that would be the difference here in the calling out. It is absolutely, it's a desperateness. And, and he chose that word to kind of give us that sort of an idea. Um, so, he was crying out even the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Let's go for a moment to pick up another part of the story. And that is in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Verse 48, many were sternly telling him to be quiet. And he kept crying out, same word, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Um, notice there, he is asking for mercy. It is, he's asking for something he didn't deserve, he can't pay for, he can never, never pay back. I want mercy, is what he's asking. That's theologically well informed. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. Okay, get him to come here. So he stops this big caravan and says, no, bring this guy in. So they called the blind man saying, so these guys are going, get out of here, you're, you're not part of this. All of a sudden, they're, they're pretending like they're part of the deal again. Uh, take courage, uh, stand up, he's calling for you. Um, Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Why? I, I, as I was reading this and thinking about it this last week, I've thought again, why throw that little detail in there? He threw aside his coat. And uh, I read something interesting from a guy who was blind. And blind in a third world country. And he said, one of the most terrifying things that can happen to you is you lose your stuff. And you lose your stuff in a crowd. So you're in a position where you have to put yourself where there's high intensity people or else the begging doesn't work well. But in the midst of that, you can have your stuff all gone. And so it is the idea of begging, but somehow hang on to the stuff that you need to survive. And, and you need a coat. You need something warm to survive. And, and so and especially you don't just leave it over there and say, well, I'm going to come back to that stump because you might not find that stump and, that, and it might be gone anyway. You, blind, you hang on to your stuff. And it says here, throwing aside his cloak, and I often wondered about that. Why, why did he do that? I have a bit of an idea that I'm going to float by you. Um, I would think it is because this blind man has paid attention to the word of God he has seen with more accuracy who Jesus was than those with sight, David's son, Jesus' son of David. The sighted say Jesus of Nazareth, he's got it right. They conclude Jesus is a big shot who will be irritated by a lowly beggar of assumed sketchy character, but Bartimaeus? Apparently he has this notion that the son of David is compassionate and caring, and he'll take time for beggars and blind men 
and he might be able to find his jacket just fine after the interview. Interesting. So he jumped up and came to Jesus. I would suggest that in his blindness, he discovered more about Jesus than the thousands of sighted that were around him. Sometimes blind men and people with afflictions can see better than the sighted and the well. And I would say those sometimes are always going to be a one-to-one -one correspondence with people who are in affliction, but they pay attention to the Word of God. And they take it serious. You can be blind, but if you listen to the Word of God, you could be ahead of people who have a lot more going for them. And I think he was. So here he is. He's, he's got an interview with the Lord, and so he just kind of tosses the cloak. And you say, so was he presumptuous? Was he sort of, uh, okay, so I'm going to get my entitled? I don't think so. It doesn't appear he had a sense of entitlement. He was continually pleading to have mercy. Do something for me that I don't deserve. I cannot earn and I cannot repay. Words reveal thoughts. He chose those words. If there's a confidence here, it seems that it's a confidence that this Jesus might in compassion do what he was evidently capable of if Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus could just get by the self-appointed uh, crowd control. Well, verse 40, uh, 51. In answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And again, over the last week, I've been thinking about that, and I think, actually, that, that's a profound, profound situation. This is an epic moment. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the one who formed the universe, the high commander of the angel army, Yahweh in the flesh. And here is Yahweh in the flesh talking to someone of the lowest caste in his society and saying, can I do something for you? It's just, it's just kind of an astonishing moment. Why does God bother with us? Especially when he gets to know us, why does he bother with us? But here he is to this guy, and he's going, can I do something for you? It's actually kind of an epic moment. Um, what a contrast between the two people, and, and what an insight into Jesus. Uh, the blind man says to him, Rabboni, which is the intensified form of rabbi, very respectful, and the other editions uh, have it, that they actually called him Kurias Lord. Um, if, you, if this guy had gone up to Herod, he wouldn't have said Lord this or that. Using that term, it again indicates what he's thinking. Number one, he is the premier teacher, and number two, it's the only term you'd use if you're talking to God. This guy has figured out who Jesus was. And the whole bunch of people milling around him who are part of his entourage most certainly had not yet. So he says, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Evidently, he had sight at one point in time, missed it, and now he wished it back. All right, so verse, uh, let's go to, what shall we say here? 
Let's go to Matthew, or pardon me, Luke chapter 19 again, verse 42. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight, and then a little phrase, your faith has, and there's uh, three words in most of your translations, made you well. It is a derivative, a kind of a, a ramped up version of the word sozo, which nine times out of ten in the word of God means to save, to, to save salvation spiritually, in other words. There's times where it just means going to be delivered from your problem. That's true. And, and so then you have to say, well, so what was the intent of the author? And, and then you need to look at the context, right? The, the first thing you look for to decide meaning is context. Second thing you look for is context. Yeah, you know how that goes. All right, so context of this. The context of this, let's, let's pay attention here. Um, number one, he says, your faith has made you well. Question, and this is going to be good to sort out. Do you actually believe that the healing of most of the people that were coming to Jesus had something to do with and was dependent on their faith? No, quite the contrary. Healing was overwhelmingly done to people who did not have faith. Or like the archetypical example, here's a, a boy who's about 18, and he's dead. The son of Nain. And Jesus comes along and raises him to life. And Jesus said, man, <laughs> you were dead, but man, you had a wonderful sense of... No, he was dead. He was dead. And that is overwhelmingly what, what Jesus did. Uh, the, 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 the ratio was, was terrible, actually, from, from a, if we didn't understand sovereignty. Ten lepers are healed. One, by, one come, comes back and says, oh, by the way, thank you. The rest of them just kind of beetle off and have nothing more to do with Jesus. Crazy. So faith was never a, a, a defining thing about whether somebody got healed or not. It always was if they got saved or not. It always was if they got saved. So that would be the first context. Um, the fact that he says um, it, is that it is your faith that has done this. Um, and there's evidence that he actually, there, there, his, his faith was in the correct thing. And it wasn't he had faith in his faith or he was going to try and, you know, kind of work up. I'm just going to believe it hard enough. Believe it hard enough. Where did that nonsense come from? Oh, I remember. Christian science. That, that comes from shamanism. Okay. Um, faith always has to have the right object. If it's, if it's genuine saving faith and his faith, the object of his faith was Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of David. The object of his faith was something that sprung out of a mature understanding of the word of God that was interpreted within its proper context. And, and when you have a, a faith like that in the right object, the word of God correctly understood that's productive. That's productive. Well, um, here it is. Verse 
um, Matthew tells us that both blind men got touched. If we went back to Matthew. And both were instantly healed. But in both Mark and Luke, something special is said of Bartimaeus that is not said of the other. And that is, your faith has sezokin you. And again, I say nine times out of ten, that mean, that has something to do with salvation. So, thousands and thousands were healed without a faith requirement. But he did need to have faith to be saved. And then, I would say, there's another added thing, and that is, check out the outcome. Check out what happens at the end of it. The outcome is a lasting, visible stance of a disciple. He immediately began following him. And the verbiage here means there's a point in time he started following and he continued. This guy followed the Lord. And that is sort of a rarity in, in, the, in the three and a half year ministry of the Lord. He has a lasting visible stance of a disciple. So it appears that Bartimaeus was saved. A few things I want to point out. In verse 43, immediately he regained his sight began following him. So the healing was not something that was incremental. He started feeling better and over the next few years. Because if that is what had happened, anybody who was a disbeliever would say, ah, the guy just, he had a sickness and he got better. That wasn't a miracle. It was a miracle and it was obviously a miracle of the Lord because the healing was immediate, organic, verifiable, and public. Then, then we know that's something that's real. And his response then again was immediately appropriate. He began to follow. So getting back to a question I raised earlier, why does Luke focus on one purpose, person and why does Mark actually name him the son of Timaeus? Both men that day were physically healed, but only one expressly says sozo, saved as a consequence. It appears that Bartimaeus was named in the account because he may well have been known to the community of believers. When Mark is writing his passage, he's saying, this is Bartimaeus and here's his story. And the people who were reading the account knew Bartimaeus uh, many years later. He may well have even been one of the original 121 believers gathered in the upper room some weeks later. But it appears that he was known by those who followed Christ since then. So here he is, and, and that's how he got saved. He came wanting f sight, but he came with faith, and, and he asked the right question. He asked for the right thing. Would you give me mercy? Ben, that sounds familiar. That actually sounds a little bit like the tax collector, right? Would you be merciful to me? And... And there's a predictable response of the Lord to that kind of a request. So, let's wrap this up. What are the implications of the lessons of this event? Here's some obvious. Jesus was the son of David. Jesus was the son of David. And he did have the absolute power and the authority of God. Not just he had the ability to do something... He, he didn't ask to have permission to go do it first. He had the power and the authority. And the power and authority of God. Jesus 
was a keen student of the word and flawlessly truthful. If this man were making a statement of him that was overblown or untrue, Jesus would have corrected him. He was the Mashiach. He was the Messiah. Second point in respect to thinking about the crowds that were all around him. Ignorance of the scripture can keep you from really knowing him and being saved even if you are in proximity to him, his people and his followers. There are lots of people over the ages who want something from God. And so they hang out in churchy places because they want something. There were huge crowds. They were following Jesus at this point in time. Why? Because they were all disciples. They wanted something. They wanted the benefits of God. They did not really want God. And, and the church, it's understood, tends to attract those kind of people. They, they want something. For, they, want, they, they have something in their life. They go, I, I just need some peace. I, I feel troubled, I, I need something. And, but when it comes down to, oh, you mean like what I need to do is I need to sign off and, and he's the master and, my, and I'm the slave and I don't trust, put any hope in how good I am, that, it, that all of my goodness is as filthy rags? And, and they're looking for the exit. The, the world is going to be full of people who crowd around until they understand some things about who Jesus is and what it costs to be a follower. Well, ignorance of Scripture can keep you from really knowing him and being really saved. You can be all around Jesus and seem to know him, but miss the most important parts of a real relationship with him, namely, if you're going to have a relationship with him, he's the master, you're the slave. You do what you're told. Another thing we learn, I think, with Moses and with Bartimaeus, by faith they were able to see him who is unseen. Remember that being said about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11? By faith he saw that him who is unseen. And by faith, again in the right object, the word of God, um, Bartimaeus saw a good deal more than the sighted around him did. The last one I would maybe mention is that Jesus not only has the power and the authority, but he has mercy on those that ask. I was reading somebody's reaction to this text and whimsically they wrote, man, I wish I could get in that DeLorean of the movies, get it up to 88 miles an hour so it becomes a time travel machine. And I wish I could get myself back into that crowd where I could actually be right there talking to Jesus and I could ask him about healing me. And I wish I could be there. If only could I point out you have way more advantages where you're sitting right now than Bartimaeus ever had. 
Bartimaeus had the interference of this whole bunch of people. Ah, oh, shut up. You know, keep, keep it down over there. He had, he had all kinds of people who were running interference, and he couldn't physically see. He couldn't get at them, and it, he had to work at trying to get some sort of an audience. Do you realize, if you're a believer, you have absolute access immediately to the throne of grace? You don't need to do something special. You don't need to slay some special lizard. You don't have to, you don't have to do other... Any, you can, right in your seat, you can pause and be immediately speaking before a throne of grace. You don't even have anybody interfering. Sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. And so if you're here today and you're going, man, it would have been nice to have been there so I could ask Jesus, what, what in the world would be holding you back today? Just sometimes it is because we don't ask because we don't really believe that our God is compassionate, that he would be kind toward us. If, if, you're, if you're sitting here thinking, but I don't know if I deserve it, excellent, beautiful, because you don't. But, but you can always come to God, you can always come to God and say, can I have mercy? Next thing, if you're a believer, do you trust this God that you're coming before? If you're facing a major obstacle or you're facing some major physical onset that's blossoming in your life, do you trust this God? He said a few things, like if you're a believer, he is going to work all things together for your good, not what you would describe as good, but for your good. There's nothing that's going to come into your life that isn't for your good. Pain is sometimes really good for you. It is. Um, facing difficulty, facing hardship, that's often really, really good for you. It kind of weans your heart from the love of this world. It kind of puts your focus on the right thing. Um, do you trust that God is able to deliver you from your bad situation? Do you trust that you're in a bad situation because of God's sovereignty? Do you trust God even if he keeps you there? And he says, do you know something? The grace that I'm going to give you is wonderfully adequate. And you just be content and satisfied with the dealings of God. So I'm asking you, do you trust this God you're dealing with? Sometimes we need to ask, but we need to ask from the point of view of mercy, and we need to ask, thy will be done, because it isn't supposed to be that, that life is always full of roses, okay? That's not what we're called to. Heaven, that's pretty good. Here? Hmm. But we need to understand he has mercy on those that ask. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, you need to pray and ask for mercy. And he causes people who come to him that way to be born from above. 
He gives them ears to hear, eyes to see, and he saves them. And my Lord is wonderfully, predictably behaving and responding that way to those who humbly ask for mercy. Have you done that? You don't have to fight through a crowd. You don't have to do something special. You don't have to have a special receiver. Bow your head and quietly talk to him. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God who wonderfully dispenses mercy to those who humbly, without a sense of entitlement, ask. Thank you, Lord, that you are such a good God. Thank you, Lord, that you are such a powerful God that you don't give us, and you're such a wise God that you don't give us everything we ask for. Because then what kind of a mess would we be in? Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you with what you bring into our life. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you immediately. Thank you, Lord, that you are this God who can immediately override any difficulty that we're in. And, and thank you, Lord, that you are that Jesus, Son of David. And we are going to be able to see you if we're believers someday and rejoice in you and, and do as this crowd did, go away glorifying God. It is my fervent prayer that none here would one day see Jesus, this Jesus, and he would be their judge. Draw men and women to a saving knowledge of you. By your great mercy we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll call on our song leaders to close our time in prayer.